comes from Psalm 75. We're going to read the whole thing. Let me read for us as we begin. We praise you, God. We praise you. For your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. To the wicked, do not lift your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak defiantly. defiantly. No one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the weak of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Last week, we spoke about the difficulties of trusting God despite uh, uh, hard times. We looked at how to soldier on through the discouragement of, of uh, through discouragement by having the right perspective in life. We looked at how to soldier on in a world where those who, seem, who are not trusting God, who are far from him, seem to be doing better than those who trust in him. We're encouraged to look at their end, to look at God and what he will do in the time to come, and in light of that, to be like the psalmist who says, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? On earth there is nothing I, I desire besides you. So we encouraged last week to look at the wicked, to look at those who do not know God, and say, I want nothing from what they have. What I have in God is much more valuable than anything, than all the money, than all the, uh, perhaps, the fame that they may have. What I have in God is much more valuable. This morning, we are still dealing with the same thing of uh, discouragement in the face of sin. But in, our focus now turns away from uh, what they are doing in their end, but turns to God himself and his timing in dealing with them. Because we can uh, listen to what, I, to, to what we saw last week and say, yeah, but I hear you. But these people are going to live their lives. And they are going to 
um, to have their best lives in this world. And I hear you, but when is God going to come? When is God who has placed them on slippery ground, according to verse 8 of, of uh, chapter 73? When is God who has placed them on slippery ground going to come and punish them? Maybe unhappy with the timing of God. That yes, Lord, you're going to judge. But when? How long will I have to wait? Do you really have the whole world in your hands? Why does it feel like it's falling apart then? When is God going to do something about it? Psalm 75 looks at that. The question of the timing of God to execute his justice. And and the psalmist begins uh, by giving thanks to God. By first giving thanks to God for what he has done and for who he is. This is one. He says there, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. The psalmist starts with a declaration of confidence. Unlike Psalm 73, which you saw last week, which started with, yes, with a declaration that God is good, but it started with a tone of discontent. That God is good to everyone else except me, except the psalmist. But Asaph, the author of this psalm, again gives thanks to God for his name, first of all, and his work. What does it mean by giving thanks to, uh, in verse 1, giving thanks to God because your name is near? What does he mean by that? First of all, you need to begin by the fact that God's name is closely associated with what he does. It is his very nature when he introduced himself to, uh, to Israel as a God who was and is and will be, the I am who I will be. He was talking about who he is as a God who has not changed as he, as, as he gave the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He affirmed to them that he has not changed. But what you see in this psalm is that not only is he giving thanks for the name of God, Yahweh, but he's giving thanks to the fact that God is near. He's near in a number of ways, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. He's near in the, fe- in the sense that God is everywhere, yes. But he's near to the people of Israel. As the people who have been given the law of God, as those who have the tabernacle in the temple, representing the presence of God among his people. So, to Israel, God is near. While everyone else lives in darkness at this time, God has shown them the light, has shown them how to have a relationship with him. He also gives thanks for the works of God. He says, men tell of your wonderful 
deeds. He's giving thanks to God, not only because God is near through his word and through his actions. He gives thanks to God because the people around him know what he has done. The people in Israel are people who are formed by God, who are maintained by God through his word. And the people whose lives are directed by God. So what God had, had done for them in the past, they know it. What God has, is promising them in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and earth in the Old Testament, they trust in it. The God who, who has given them kings, such as David and Solomon, has been at work among them. A God who has defended them in their fights with their neighbors has been with them. The God who forgives their sins year after year as they go out to make sacrifices is near to them. So God's deeds are not foreign to the people of Israel. So he starts by doing this. He says, I thank you that you are not a God who is, who is unknown. We know your name. You're not a God who is far. You are near to us. You are not God who is, <coughs> who is inactive. We know your work. This is to contrast him with all the idols around them. Whom they are to speculate about their work. But they know God and they know what he has done for them. And he turns then, the psalmist in verses 2 and 3, and he says, This God whom you know is in control. This God whom you know is in control, verses 2 and 3. says, You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity, or other versions, who judges uprightly in the ESV. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. The biggest problem that Christians have with God's control is that it does not work in our own timing. I think it's not just uh, uh, Christians here, it's that everyone... <coughs> who prays to God, thinks that God is not acting when they want him to act. So this God who is present with them, who has been at work, he starts addressing them in verse 2. He says, it is I, I chose the appointed time. I'm the one who's going to judge with equity. I'm the one who's going to judge rightly. To be in control is to act in the time that you please. God, in his knowledge, he says, I'm going to act when I have determined to act. They may be seeing people around them, such as in, in Psalm 73, seeming to be prospering, doing well. 
And yes, believing that God will uh, judge them. But when? Now in Psalm 75, he turns and he says, I know when I'm, when I'm going to do that. This is an encouragement for them to trust in this God who is in control. He goes further and says, not only do I choose the appointed time as to when I'm going to judge, the whole earth is in my hand. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars. The image that we are given there is that when you have an earthquake in your world, it is I who keeps you safe. It is I who holds it together, who holds the world together that it does not fall apart. So therefore, Israel, trust me. Trust me, I will judge. This is a, uh, a struggle that we all have. We all struggle with the question of God's timing, don't we? We all struggle with the fact that God does not come immediately and punish those who have done wrong. But you need to remember that, that God's delay has a purpose in the Bible. God's delay is intentional and in a lot of ways it is mercy from God. For instance, you don't pretend them. Uh, I'll give you at least two reasons. In Romans 2 verses 4, God says there that my patience is meant to lead people to repentance. His forbearance, his, his forbearance and patience is meant to lead those whom God has been patient with to repentance. Imagine you and I, perhaps if you're a believer, yeah, this morning, how God waited for you. He was patient with you. Did not punish you for your, for, for your sins, but waited for you until you turned your heart towards him. So his patience was an act of mercy. Perhaps even his patience uh, towards these people who have done wrong is an act of mercy by God. But we also see from Genesis chapter 15, in verses 16, that God allows sin or allows injustice to continue until it reaches its full measure. That is the word used in, um, in Genesis chapter uh, 15, verses 16. He tells uh, Abraham, or Abraham at that time, that you will not enter um, this nation in, of Israel until the Amorites, the sins of the Amorites have reached their full measure. What does God mean by that? He says, I, I think he means until I have had enough of their, of their wickedness. He has given them grace at this time to turn to him but a time will come in which I will say I've had enough. This, the, the evil of these people has reached a full measure. 
So therefore, trust in this timing. That the God who works has an appointed time. The God who works is merciful. That those who sin against him have opportunities to turn to God in faith. So you, therefore, who is dealt with unjustly, know that the God is going to punish. Not only is he going to punish, but he's also going to uh, reward the faithful. Those who wait for him, those who trust in him, those who do not go with the world. We say this in verses 4 to 8. Let me, let me read for us from verses 4 to 5. He stands then and he divides the people who are in the world into kind of two categories. And he tells us how he's going to deal with them. He says there are two ways to live in this world. One, you can be the boastful, the arrogant, the wicked. Or you can be the righteous. Those who patiently wait for God. And he starts here by dealing with the wicked. Verse 4, he says, To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. To the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up, do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with an outstretched neck. To the wicked, he says, boast no more. Don't gloat in your sin. You who are wicked. You are, you are basically being given an opportunity. As God is, um, uh, uh, is rebuking them. He says, do not boast anymore. Do not gloat in the evil that you have done. And say there is no God. What does God know? According to uh, Psalm 73. He says, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with an outstretched neck. He turns now to a, um, an analogy of an animal. And he says, do not lift up your horn. If you're an animal, imagine a cow for a moment. Do not lift up your, your horns against your creator who is in heaven. When a cow lifts up its horns, and it faces another cow, it is a demonstration of strength and power in that it is ready to attack. So God turns to the wicked and says, do not lift up your horns against me. Do not think that I, who is in heaven, who created you, do not see your wickedness. Like an animal, like a beast, do not think that you will defeat God in battle. Do not think that your strength is, uh, is better than mine. Do not think that your power is anything compared to mine. The idea of the horn as power is even seen in Revelation 
chapter 5. When Jesus Christ is said to have seven horns and seven eyes, that is, perfect power and perfect uh, uh, sight, but he sees all, he is in control of all. So therefore, here, God says to the wicked, do not lift up your horn towards me. Do not think that you have the power to overpower me. Then another uh, illustration being used here is that do not stretch up your neck towards me. Yeah, it's again an illustration um, that you see in animals a lot. When they stretch up their necks to make themselves um, bigger, you see it with, uh, with chickens. They do that with uh, peacocks. Uh, they do that as well. When they stretch out their necks to intimidate the other in a fight, God says, don't think that you're going to win. This is an encouragement to those who are in sin that you will be defeated. He reminds them um, in, uh, in verses 6 and 7 that no one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt a man. But it is God who judges. He brings men down. He exalts. He says no one from all the corners of the world can lift up an individual. No one makes people. I am in control. God is saying there. I am the one who lifts people up. I am the one who brings people down. I am the one who uses kings to achieve my purposes. I am the one who destroys kings who have sinned against me. It is God who judges, the psalmist tells us. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of God, we are told in verses 8, is a cup full of foaming wine, mixed with spices. He pours it out. And... <laughs> And all the wicked of the earth drink down to its very dregs. So here we are told that it is God who punishes here. So when God has had enough of sin, he is the one who punishes. Because the cup of God can sometimes be a reference to the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God. We see that in Isaiah 51, verses 17. And also see that with Jesus in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane. And he says, remove this cup from me. That is, the, as he sweats blood, taking upon himself the judgment of God on behalf of the wicked. God says here, yeah, the time will come when the wicked will not have their cup drank by someone else, but they will drink it themselves. That they 
will take the punishment that comes from God. So, you therefore who are listening to this, to this psalm, you're meant to ask yourself, where do I want to find myself? Do I want, do I want to find myself among the, uh, the wicked, the boastful, the arrogant? Or do I want to, do I want to find myself among the, the righteous? Those who do not lift up my horns before God. Those who have humbled themselves before him. The psalmist we see here, indeed puts himself on the side of the righteous. And indeed calls every one of us to the side of the righteous. In in verses 9 he says, As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. So therefore, I will, I, I, I will declare this forever. I will sing to the God of Jacob, which is a shorthand for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant, the God who has promised to redeem, to love, to bless the people of Israel. I will be a child of the promise, therefore, this, uh, the psalmist says. Verses 10, it says, I will cut off the horns of all of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. The wicked, their horns will be cut off. In the original, it's difficult to tell on verse 10 uh, who's talking there, um, whether it's God or it's the psalmist. But I think it is God here who says, I will, the, I will, the one, I will cut the, the horns off. Because the psalmist can't really do anything about someone else's pride, someone else's sin. And he cannot lift himself up. It is God who lifts up. So I say they, it is God who says, I will cut off the horns of all of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous... I will lift up. You will stand proudly before me, those who trust in God. But the wicked, the wicked will stand in shame before God. As they take upon themselves the very judgment of God. Those who um, partake in sin now in this world will be punished by God. And those who stay away from sin and trust in him and trust in God will be rewarded by God. Those who are proud now will be humbled and those who are humble now will be lifted up. Those who boast in themselves will one day take upon the punishment for their sins themselves And those who boast in Christ, in what he has done on their behalf, and humbled themselves before God, will be lifted up, and will be clothed in righteousness, and will spend an eternity with God. And when will all of this happen? In God's time. Verse 2, I'll read verse 2 again. 
You say, Lord, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judges with equity. I choose the appointed time. It is I who judges with equity. But to you, therefore, live as righteous. Do not boast. Do not lift up your horns to God. Do not lift up your horn to the heaven. Do not live uh, proudly, partaking in sin and saying with the other wicked, what does God know? But rather humble yourself before God and he will lift you up in due time. This is an encouragement to us. Yes, to wait on God. But also to be found among the righteous in God. In some, <coughs> sorry, as we, as we read earlier, um, and also found in some, uh, is that in, in Psalm 42, that there is no one who is righteous. Not even one. No one does good. Romans chapter uh, 3 says that as well. And all of us are justified, are declared just, because of Christ at the cross. So therefore, if we want to be found among the righteous, we need to be in Christ. Because our natural tendencies is to be among those who boast in God, among those who lift up our horns before him, who do not live humbly before him, among those who trust in ourselves. This is an encouragement to you and I to seek righteousness in Christ. Let us pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that through Christ that we can be declared righteous. People who are sinners, who are covetous, who, people who uh, do not love you as we ought to, who do not love our neighbors as we ought to, but people who are striving to trust in you. People who are striving with all their might, with the help of your spirit, to cast their anxieties on you, to entrust themselves to Christ. We praise you that you can accept us into your family and adopt us as your children only because of what Christ did at the cross. Help us now, Lord, in the week to come, in the year to come, to be found among the righteous. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.